If you have your Bible today, let's turn to Romans chapter 3. We're still going through Romans, and will be for a while. Um, Romans chapter 3, and where we'll be today is verses 25 into 26. And if you don't have a Bible, then get one of the black Bibles on the end of each pew, and it should be on page 941 in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself at all, then just take that one home with you. Uh, It's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word there handy uh, to be read. By the way, if you're taking that Bible for yourself and you're wondering, where do I start? Go to the book of John, all right? Start with the book of John, and it will tell you uh, just so clearly about the life of Jesus and call you so clearly to believe. Uh, We want you to have the gift of eternal life, not just the gift of a paper Bible. All right, so we are in Romans chapter 3 today, and we're going to look at the end of verse 25 into verse 26, and I'll just start reading at verse 21 for some context here. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we'll look at the, starting at uh, in verse 25 in the middle, to show God's righteousness. That's where we'll begin today. Uh, I heard several things this week about the fact that this week was the fourth anniversary of the death of R.C. Sproul. Now, when you start hearing things about the fourth anniversary of someone's death, you know that that's somebody who impacted a lot of lives because you don't typically hear those kinds of announcements about someone. And uh, if you had ever listened to R.C. Sproul very much, great Presbyterian pastor, we'll forgive him for being Presbyterian. I think he's probably Baptist now, but... um, one of the things that I heard him say several times, and you might have also heard him say this, is, is that he, he was once asked the question, what is the greatest need of humanity? Or what is the greatest need of every human being? And that's a good thing to think about. What is the greatest need? And what was the answer that he would always give to that question? Well, the greatest need of every human being is to know God. That's exactly right. That is the purpose that you have been made for, is to know the God who created you, to be in right relationship, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever, right? That's your greatest need is to know God. And what we see in the passage we're looking at today is that that's why Jesus was given as our Savior, so that we would know God, so that God would be glorified. We, We see here the purpose for which God redeems sinners. So last week, as we had seen in these verses, we saw that the way that God brought about the redemption of sinners from their sin was through Jesus, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. But the question is that he's about to answer now, why did he do that? Now, that's a question we might not, not, might not ask very often. Why would he do that? Why would God send Jesus 
to die for our sins, to be the propitiation for our sins, to redeem us. Why would God send Jesus to redeem us? And sometimes we think to ourselves, well, obviously it's because we're awesome. And there has to be a way for God to get these awesome people to heaven. Now, you wouldn't put it that way. You know not to put it that way. You in this church know better than to put it that way. But sometimes that's the feeling, is like, well, God just really, really, really wanted to get people to heaven because otherwise he'd be alone or something. And, and uh, this is the way he could do it, cause, just because he has, has such a high regard for sinful man. Well, God loves sinful man, and that's amazing. That's amazing. But why would he do this? Why would he do it? Well, the answer is right here in the second half of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. Now, I don't know if you pay much attention to little phrases like that, little twists and turns in the wording of a book of the Bible as you're reading through it, but sometimes this is a really big deal. This was to... He's saying here is a big purpose, big picture reason why would God justify sinners by his grace as a gift? Why would he give the redemption that is in Christ Jesus? Why would he put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood? He says this was to show God's righteousness. He says here's the reason is so that people... And not just people, but all of creation and the angels in heaven and the demons below and everybody would have displayed to them the righteousness of God. You know what he's saying here? He's saying that the purpose of redeeming sinners is to glorify himself. This was to show God's righteousness. Now, God makes some even more explicit statements about that elsewhere in Scripture, and one of the most explicit is in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9, where he says to Israel, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. And he says a verse later than that, verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You hear that? He says, I save you sinners for my own name's sake. Some people would look at that and they would say, well, that's really arrogant of God. God ought not to say things like that. Well, guys, we ought not to say things like that. But you know why? Because we're not God. God is God. For God to give glory and praise to another or to fail to be about the glory of his own name would be wrong. God is God. God is the purpose of all things. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And by the end there, it doesn't just mean the end point. It means the point of everything. God is the point of everything, and God is the point of God. And God's redemption of sinners, he says right here, was to demonstrate God's righteousness. Why is it that Jesus died? Well, to demonstrate God's righteousness. One way to think about this is the question of who did Jesus die for? Who did Jesus die for? Usually when you hear that question, it's asked in terms of which people did Jesus die for? Or did Jesus die for all people or only for those 
whom he would save, and the answer to that in the Scripture is only for those he would save because it says in John eleven fifty two that he died not only for the people of Israel but also for the children of God who were scattered abroad, for people, for particular people. It says in, in Ephesians 5 that he gave himself up for who? For the church. It says in Revelation 5 that Jesus, by his blood, ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. So if you ask the question, who did Jesus die for, and you're just thinking about people, well, the Bible answers that question. But ask a bigger question. Not just whose sins did Jesus die for, but who did Jesus die for? Who was it that Jesus was given for the purpose of? And ultimately, Jesus died for God. Not in the same way that he died for us. He didn't die to take the sins of God because God has no sin. But Jesus died for God. For the purpose, it says right here, to show his righteousness. To glorify God, to bring praise to himself. What does that mean? Now, now there's, there's statements like I read from Isaiah around the scriptures that it's for the sake of his name, for the glory of his name. And in particular here, it says to show not just the general glory of his name, not just his general goodness or holiness, but in particular, his righteousness. What is that talking about when he says his righteousness? Another word for righteousness, by the way, is justice. It's the same word, sometimes translated as righteousness, sometimes translated as justice. It is being right. It is doing what's right. It is being in the right Justice is one of those terms that just sort of floats around. We sometimes think of it as like a movement of new liberalism when they're talking about social justice, but it's not new at all. It goes a long way back, this, this way of talking about justice in just mere human terms. But you know what? If you want to know what actual justice is, you have to know, first of all, the God of justice. Justice is not some sort of a concept that's like floating around apart from God or even above God. Here's, here's the way Fred, Fred Zaspel, he's a theologian in Pennsylvania. Uh, I, I like his definition of God's righteousness. He says that it is that aspect of his holiness which distinguishes God as consistent with his own moral demands. When we talk about God's justice, we're saying God is consistent with who God is in terms of his moral demands. And what, I, what we mean there is there, there, there's not like God here and then this concept of justice that's floating over God's head. Like God is responsible to live up to this abstract idea of justice apart from him. No, God defines justice. The fact that every human being has a longing in their heart for justice, and you do, I know you do, because when you were three years old and your brother stole your toy car, you wanted justice, didn't you? We all have that longing, and it plays out in all kinds of ways, but you know why we have that? It's because God made us, and God has a standard, and God is the one who defines that moral standard, and God's righteousness, God's justice, is God living up to God in what he has set in himself as who he is of the standard of righteousness. Now, guys, if you want to know justice, 
and to be about promoting justice in the world, that's not a bad thing. But you have to start with the starting point of actual justice, which is God himself. To have an idea of justice that you would try to enforce in the world apart from knowing the God who defines justice, you're just going to have this floating thing. This is what you see all the time in the world and the way that they try to define this. They try to define who are the oppressed and the oppressors. Who is it that needs to be stood up for? How, how do we enforce justice in this way and that way? It's just always changing. And the people who were the champions of it 20 years ago are now out because they haven't adjusted to the new justice, right? And, and wh- wh- why is that? Well, it's because you have to know God to know justice. And the place where God's justice, God's righteousness, is demonstrated most clearly, according to this verse, is at the cross of Jesus, where, where God showed that he is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We'll get to that phrase in just a minute. But this, this righteousness that God demonstrated there, that God set forth Jesus and showed that he is righteous, it's his righteousness in himself. It's showing his character in himself. It's God's righteousness in terms of his righteous standards for all of mankind. That God actually has, not just up there in the clouds, but for us, a righteous standard of right and wrong And of what ought to be done about that? God has righteous punishments. There is no punishment that God would give that is the wrong punishment. I heard this week about a truck driver who was involved in an accident where someone was killed, which is tragic. He was put on trial and sentenced to 125 years in prison for that accident. And nobody there thought that that was the right sentence. But just the way that the laws were written, it just was what had to be given as the sentence. And you look and you say, well, that's, that, yeah, there should have been some kind of punishment. 120 sentenced this man to die in prison because he was in an accident. That doesn't seem right. Well, God never gets it wrong with his punishments. He never has a punishment that is too severe for the crime, nor does he have a punishment that's not severe enough for the crime. He always gets it exactly right. God always has righteous rewards. We, we see that sometimes, too, where we question, should that person have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize? Sometimes it seems a little silly who it is that gets rewards and recognition and awards. God's never going to get that wrong. He always gets it exactly right. Exactly right. God's condemnation of the reprobate, of the wicked, who will continue out of faith for the rest of their lives, God's condemnation of sinners to hell is righteous. He doesn't get it wrong. And God's salvation of sinners through his election, through his grace, through his redemption in Jesus, his saving of sinners and putting wicked people into heaven is right. Now, they're not still wicked when they go to heaven. Let me put it that way, all right? We are rescued from being the wicked into being saints, into being the righteous by faith in Jesus. But what I'm saying here is that God is always righteous, and he always gets everything exactly right. The greatest statement, the most succinct statement of this in Scripture is in Genesis 18:25: Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes, he will. He absolutely will. 
all of God's ways are righteous, and where they seem for us for a time not to be righteous, he's going to prove his righteousness one way or another. He will do it. Sometimes when we think of this, we wonder how could God actually be righteous because of this thing that has happened in my life, because of this thing that I saw in the world, because of what happened to my friend or my family. We wonder, could God be righteous and let that happen? And that's part of the question that we're about to get to in the words that are here, but we just have to know up front, God is righteous. And in the end, everyone will see, everyone will bow the knee, everyone will say, yes, God has done what is right, and God has given the perfect punishment to the wicked, God has given the perfect reward to the righteous, and he's given that reward in the person of Jesus and not apart from him. Secondly, if you're following along in the back of your bulletin, this is number two. There's a question that this raises, and a question that's put right here to be answered in this passage. How can God be both righteous and patient? How can he be righteous and patient at the same time? Look at what it says in verse 25. It was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. You see, God has righteousness. That's an attribute of God that is spoken of right there in that passage, but he also has patience. He has his righteousness and his divine forbearance. What's that divine forbearance mean? Well, it means that God is not, he is not required to immediately punish sin. And in fact, it's within God's character that God has announced about himself that he is patient. Here's maybe the greatest statement about the Lord and his character and his attributes that's in the scriptures, just stated right here by God in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You hear that? Now, one of the things it just said there is God said about himself that he is slow to anger. That's God's patience. He is willing to put up with a lot. But it also says here, he will by no means clear the guilty. It's interesting, isn't it? How can this be that God would be both righteous and patient? Well, God demonstrates his patience toward the people that he saves. We know that because we know our sin. If you've come to faith in Christ, you've come face to face with your sin as part of that. You know why Jesus needed to save you. It's built into faith in Jesus is that we are repentant of sin and we see Jesus had to die on the cross because my sin deserved an eternal punishment that I couldn't pay, that only Jesus could pay. And so we know, hey, the fact that I got to live long enough to hear about Christ and to submit myself to him and to come to faith in him, that shows that God is patient. He was patient with me. God is patient toward the people that he saves. He showed his patience toward Israel as they were grumbling against him in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And yet he still took them because he had promised that he would. 
He was upholding his faithfulness by his patience. And God was even patient toward those that he would not save. And he is patient even toward the wicked, even toward those who will never turn to Christ. Even as the people were going to the promised land and grumbling against him and God was showing his patience to them, God was showing his patience even to the Canaanites. As God was about to come into those peoples and destroy them so that his own people could come and inhabit that promised land, God was putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And it said all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 that God would do that. That part of the reason why God would take so many hundreds of years between Abraham and Joshua to get the people into that land that he promised, he says part of the reason is to fill up the iniquity of the Amorites. To wait that time where he was being patient even to those wicked peoples, giving them opportunity after opportunity before finally ending that patience before he destroyed them. Guys, you need to know that God continues in his forbearance, in his patience right now. If you were around when we were in chapter 2, you might remember chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is part of God's character. He is forbearing. He's patient. He puts up with a lot. And it says the reason is to give you an opportunity to repent. It's amazing, isn't it? That's God's kindness. It's God's kindness to show that patience. This, this patience that he shows, for one of the things that it shows is that sin is serious. The fact that it says that he passed over former sins, well, that, that just says right there, he had the right not to pass over those sins. One of the things that's built into that phrase is that sin is so serious that the question here in the Bible is not, why would God ever punish it? The question that the Bible is trying to answer right here is, why would God ever not punish it immediately? Why would God ever tolerate sin and let it go on in the world and let those who commit sin go on with their lives rather than just picking us up and immediately casting us into hell? Well, I'm glad that he doesn't operate that way because I'd be doomed. I'd be gone. We'd all be gone. We wouldn't be sitting here right now. But the question is, why? Why would he pass over former sins? Well, one is to show part of his character. This, this, this aspect of God's character is that he is forbearing. He is patient. He gives an opportunity for repentance. This also shows that, that the old system that, that was around before Jesus was not adequate. You, you, you know, we, we have the sacrifice of Jesus that we know so, so much about now that we, we, you know, we have crosses all over the place just celebrating that Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. But remember, there was a literal Passover lamb that came before that. And there was this system of blood sacrifices throughout the Old Testament. And people were, were commanded to go through that system of sacrifice this bull and this goat on this day and that day and bring this dove on this day and, and bring this uh, bunch of grain on this day as your offering and your sacrifice. But there's also, throughout the Old Testament, there's these hints and these statements that are scattered throughout it that say pretty directly, 
What you're doing in those sacrifices is not enough. It cannot take away your sin. I'll just read you two of those. Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. And Psalm 51, verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And that almost just sounds weird. God commanded those sacrifices. God commanded those burnt offerings. And then God would come back around and say, but I don't really desire that. I'm not really pleased with it. And in another passage, he even says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. He says, I'm not like the pagan gods of the nations where they have this idea that they have to do sacrifices in order to feed their gods or their gods will get hangry with them and do mean things to them. No, God already owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has everything already. There's nothing we're adding to God through our worship and our sacrifices. Even today, there's not. And especially back then, he was, he was emphasizing, hey, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. And God never pretended that it could. Even as he had the people of Israel sacrifice that Passover lamb and spread its blood across their doorposts, God was not pretending that that blood could take away their sins. Even as he had the high priest go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the bull on the mercy seat once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, God never pretended that that blood of a bull could actually take away their sins. That's why God had to be forbearing even toward the sins of of his Old Testament saints, even toward those that he had saved by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, before Christ came, before they knew how it would work, before they knew Jesus' name, they were being saved in the same way, but as they were doing that, God had to be forbearing because there had not yet been an actual sacrifice for their sins. That could only come in Jesus that's, that's what he's, he's getting across here. He's saying that in his divine forbearance, he passed over sins in order to show his righteousness in the present time. That's a but now. Now Jesus has come. The way the Bible talks about this in a couple of different places in the New Testament is that those old sacrifices were shadows, but Jesus is the substance you can see shadows around in this room. We, we understand what that means. I can look down at the shadows of my fingers right now. And I don't get mixed up and think that's my actual finger down on the floor. I know that my hand is casting that shadow. It's kind of obvious. Have you ever had the experience where you're outside on a sunny day and out of nowhere just this giant shadow comes and sweeps across you? And what do you do when that happens? You look up because you know that there's something above you. And when you look up and you see the airplane and, and you say, wow, I can't believe that that shadow went right over me, you, you don't say to yourself, well, I'm going to try to jump on that shadow and go on a Caribbean vacation right now. You know the shadow is not going to get you anywhere. It's the airplane that would do that. But when the shadow's there, you look up, you see what's casting this. And that's what those old sacrifices were. That's what the old covenant system that God gave to Moses was all about was casting a shadow so that the people would look in faith to the substance who is Christ. Now, I'm not just making this up. Let me just read you from Hebrews chapter 10. 
It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And he says later in that chapter, in verse 10 of Hebrews 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Guys, this is just one thing to know. People in the Old Testament were saved exactly the same way that people in the New Testament and right now are saved, which is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they had a shadow They didn't have Jesus with them yet, but they had a shadow that God gave them so that they would look up and trust in him who was coming, that it all pointed to who was casting the shadow. But at that time, the question was, why does God not just wipe this people out? How could it be that God would decide in response to the prayers of Moses, or I should say not so much in response, but by means of the prayers of Moses, not to destroy the people of Israel in the wilderness after they had built the golden calf, after they had decided not to go into the promised land when God said to go into it, when they sent the spies out, when God said, I will just go on and destroy this people and make a nation out of you, Moses. How is it that God could have the forbearance to keep going to keep on letting the Old Testament saints go in this old system, well, it's because Jesus was coming. It's because Jesus was coming. The, the, the way it is that we can put together the righteousness and the patience of God is the cross. How is it that God can, can overlook and not immediately punish sin and let it go? It, it's because he has justice at the cross. At the cross of Christ where Jesus was the propitiatory sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God and turns his anger away from us and turns his favor toward us because of him. Where our sin went on Jesus where Jesus' righteousness goes to us by faith that he gives us in the Spirit. Guys, it, it is in the cross that this comes together. I'll just read you the words again. It says, In his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Guys, we got to rejoice that we live at the present time. I, I don't really know what it was like to live before Jesus I don't know what it was like to live even in Old Testament Israel where, where there were so many indications of Christ to come through the prophecies and through the systems that God had set up. I don't know what that was like. I don't know how hard it was to figure out the substance from the shadow of things. I know that by God's grace through the, the, the new birth of the Holy Spirit that God made that happen in people's hearts. But guys, praise God that we live in the now time. We live in the present time. 
Jesus has come. Jesus has lived publicly, taught publicly, died publicly, risen from the dead publicly, and he is proclaimed among the nations. We live in the present time that it's talking about. There were the former times of God's forbearance, and now there is the present time when God's righteousness is shown in the cross of Jesus. This now, this present time, that's the word now. It's, it's kind of hearkening back to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Guys, that now, that present time, that's an important call to action. It's not just a statement of theology of what God has done and how he's worked out these things that we would try to puzzle over if he hadn't told us. It is a call to action. The fact that Jesus has been put forth, that God has now done this, it calls those who are not in Christ to come to Christ. God may have passed over your former sins and patiently not punished you in the moment for those things, but now... Now, in the present time, you have Jesus set before you as crucified. Let me read the way that Paul put this when he was preaching in, uh, in Athens in Acts 17. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. That's his patience. That's his forbearance. There was ignorance. God was patient. But he says, but now. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's the but now. Jesus is crucified. You know this. Repent. Believe. Come to Jesus in faith if you don't already. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians 6 2. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. What is now? Well, it's the day when he has shown his righteousness in the present time because Jesus has been put forth as a sacrifice in his blood. Now's the time. And believer, you need to know that now, in the present time, justice has been satisfied. Justice has been satisfied for those Old Testament saints whose former sins were passed over. They were put on the cross. Justice was satisfied at the cross for your sins, believer. Jesus has done it once for all in one sacrifice. And justice has been satisfied for you, if your faith is in Jesus, and you, if you will come to faith in Jesus, because Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins in full. I'm going to read you what Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says about this. A great but now. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, in the present time, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Wow. Believe in that and walk in that. Walk in the present time. Walk in the present time when the righteousness of God has been set forth in Jesus. That's not a call to walk in sin because God is, is patient and has made an offering for our sins. It's a call to say, but now God's righteousness is shown. It's clear. And he's brought us in and he's called us righteous by faith. And he calls us to walk in the righteousness of God that's been demonstrated at the cross. There's a third question, or I guess a third point, a second question, to, to be asked here. How can God be both just and the justifier of sinners? Here's what he says. 
It was in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, that might not sound like a conundrum to you, but it is. How is it that God, in his righteousness, can call wicked people righteous? How can God be right if he would accept sinners? Sometimes the question that someone might have in their mind is, well, how, how is this good God going to get me to heaven? Well, it's kind of the right question, but sometimes you're thinking of that in terms of, well, if God is good, then he ought to put me up there. Really? Guys, the, the fact that God is good is a problem for sinners. It, it, it's, not, it's not good news for sinners just to hear that God is good when we are not. If God is good, then he's not going to accept what's not good. And so this is a conundrum. If you, it's not just a conundrum for us personally, but it's also a conundrum when you look around the world. How can God be good when the world is like this? We, we know this. I, aren't, we've already talked a couple of times, kind of apologizing to ourselves for ourselves, the fact that our numbers are low today. Why are our numbers low today? Because there is disease in the world. All right? And, and who created the world? God. And who sustains the world and directs the world in his providence? Well, God. How can there be disease in the world if God is good? How can there be death? How can there be destruction? How can it be that there is so much heartache and so many sins of people against each other and against God? Every time you turn on the news, you realize this. I mean, this is what makes news is the bad things that happen. And, and there's crimes that are committed that are just horrible. There are horrible things that people get away with that you never hear about. There, there is this depressing downward spiral of our culture further and further into idolatry and immorality. And you would look at this if you didn't know better, if you didn't know what the Scripture said. You'd look and you'd say, well, if God made this, he must not be good. And of course... If we would look in our own hearts, we'd say, how could God possibly be good and take somebody who did that thing and put me in heaven? How could God take somebody with the kind of thoughts that I have had, the kind of words that have come out of my mouth, the kind of things that I've, I've acted out on, how could God put somebody like me in a position of saint and hold me up in the day of judgment and declare me to be righteous before heaven and earth and vindicate me, how could good God do that? How can a God who sends sinners to heaven be good? I'm going to just read you something from Paul Washer here. He's a fantastic evangelist. If you're not familiar with Paul Washer, you can just Google him all kinds of evangelistic sermons. But here's, here, here's something that he said. He said, the greatest problem in all of Scripture is that God is just. And if God is just, he cannot forgive you. He cannot. And the great question of the Apostle Paul is, how can God be the just and the justifier of wicked people? Because Proverbs itself says, anyone who justifies the wicked is an abomination before God. So how can God justify the wicked? It was only one way. His justice, 
The demands thereof must be satisfied and must be satisfied by the outpouring of divine justice. And so on that tree, Christ, our sins were imputed to him. He bore the guilt of our transgressions and the wrath of Almighty God was poured out on his only begotten son. And so divine justice was satisfied and the wrath of God was appeased against his people. Here is the answer to how God can be just and the justifier of the ungodly, as he's going to say a few verses later, the ungodly who has faith in Jesus. The answer is the cross of Jesus. This is where God's justice was satisfied for our sins. The fact that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins in our place as our substitute That is how God can be both just and the justifier of sinners like me. Because his love and his justice come together at the cross. His wrath and his grace, they come together at the cross. We we sing that hymn in Christ alone, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Satisfied for me. And one day, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to come a second time, it says in Hebrews, not to deal with sin, but to rescue those who were eagerly waiting for him. And because of Jesus, and because of what he accomplished at the cross, and is going to carry out in fullness at his second coming, even the stuff you see on the news, God will prove himself righteous in all of those things, and he will set everything right forever and ever, and what bought that was the blood of the cross. The blood of the cross. How can we receive that benefit, the benefit of God's righteous, righteousness? Well, it's, it's by faith. It says he is the just and the justifier of who? Of everybody? No. Of the one who has faith in Jesus is what it says. This is how we can know God started out saying, this is the most important thing, this is the reason that God redeems sinners, is so that he would show his righteousness, so that we would know him in the fullness of his glory, the glory that includes his righteousness. And how does it come to us? How do we be declared righteous? How can he justify us? Well, it's through faith. What is faith? We talk about this all the time. As I was getting this ready, I said, do I need to explain faith again? And I thought, yes. Yes, I do. And those of you who are are here on a weekly basis, if you say to yourself, well, he's going through those points of what faith is again, good. I hope it's so driven in your head that you can just very easily explain it to anybody who asks. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ, this is from the Baptist Catechism, is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered us in the gospel. Faith involves knowledge, agreement, and trust. Knowledge is where you know about Christ, you know about the gospel. You know the good news that God is holy, man is sinful, Christ is the only Savior, And that our response is faith, and that those who have faith are saved. God, man, Christ's response. The faith is where you start out knowing that truth. Secondly, you would not just know it in your head, but also agree with it in your head. 
to affirm it. Now, most people would stop there and say, well, that's believing the gospel, where you have affirmed that it is true. You have affirmed that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that Jesus is the perfect Savior and sacrifice for our sins. You have affirmed that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. Well, you, you do need to affirm that. You do need to actually honestly agree with that, but that's still not faith because even the demons believe and tremble. Faith is not just knowledge, not just agreement, but personal trust in this personal Savior. It's where we rest upon Him alone for our salvation. It's where you entrust yourself, body and soul, your very being, for all eternity into the hands of Jesus. And for those who have faith, He is both the just and the justifier. He counts us as righteous. He saves us by faith alone. Now, some hear this and they say, well, trusting yourself entirely into the hands of Jesus, I don't know if my faith is as strong as I wish it was. Or even worse, you might say, I don't know if that guy over there has real faith because he doesn't seem as strong as somebody else. Well, guys, here is the the thing. God doesn't give everybody the same measure of faith. When he grants faith, it says in Romans 12, 3, that some are granted different measures of faith. But here's the good news. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's not how much you have faith that you have faith that saves you. It's the Savior that you have faith in who saves you. Jesus said, even faith like a grain of a mustard seed will move mountains. I, I, I hold on to that one. Because I don't know about you, but as a believer, I look at my own heart and I say, my faith needs to be stronger. Well, God has granted measures of faith. God grows us in our faith, just like he grows us in our love, just like he grows us in our hope, and in all kinds of ways. He grows us in our faith. But here's the thing. If you have faith in Jesus, you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you worry, do I have faith, don't worry about the strength of your faith. Spend less effort thinking about the quality and the intensity of your faith and spend more effort and time thinking about the quality of your Savior. Look to Jesus. Have faith in Jesus and you will be saved. This passage shows God's righteousness. If we would know God, if we would be counted as righteous, We must have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus who has come into the world, who has lived perfectly for us, who has died perfectly for our sins, who's risen into heaven and is our high priest right now interceding for us. God, we we thank you for his sending of his spirit who is with us and indwelling us as believers and preparing us for heaven and preparing us for the second coming in the eternal kingdom of Christ. God, you've given us everything in Christ. And you've done this not for ultimately just for our sake, but ultimately for your own sake. God, you've done this to demonstrate your glory and to show your righteousness. And so I pray that we would know you, that we would know you by faith in your only begotten son, Jesus And, Lord, that we would rejoice in your being the just and the justifier. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.